listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. Read as much as you can. Like, the more you read, the more you fill up your, your imagination and your brain with possibilities and knowledge. The more books you read, the more you have to steal from when you make your own books. Um, so, so reading, you, you cannot read too much. This talk was recorded as a live-streamed conversation. So boredom is an indication that you're not connecting with your true self or with the idea in the correct way. So back, back and try again. Up next, Andy Griffiths. Hi everyone, my name is Min and I'm the digital producer for the kids and families team here at the Sydney Opera House. Today, the Opera House is situated on a piece of land that we call Benelong Point, but the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, called this place Tubagali, and I would like to acknowledge their elders past and present. Today, we have schools joining us from all around Australia, and our special guest is joining us from Melbourne, which sits on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Andy Griffiths is one of Australia's most popular children's authors, and together with his friend and illustrator, Terry Denton, he has written over 33 different books, and his Treehouse series has been published in 35 different countries. And some of his books have been adapted into stage productions and TV shows. We're so lucky that Andy is here with us today to answer your questions and to tell us a little bit about his creative process, what inspires him and why stories about bums and farts are so funny. Please welcome the magnificent and marvellous Andy Griffiths. Hi, Andy. Hi, Min. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. So great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and share all of your tricks and um, share some of your creative processes with us. Really looking forward to hearing all of your answers to questions. I'm always happy to have any distraction from, from my proper work. So this, <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> That's great. Well, we have lots of students joining us and some of them have sent in some videos and we have a lot of questions. So should we get stuck into it right away? Sure. Let's okay. do it. The first question comes from Bustleton in WA. Hi, I'm Audrey from Georgia and Mulianga from School WA. My question is, at what age did you decide you wanted to be an author and what led you to that decision? The question is, at what age did you decide that you wanted to be an author and what led you to that decision? I didn't uh, decide I wanted to be an author till relatively late, uh, in my late 20s, but throughout my childhood I'd always been drawing and writing and doing little cartoons and entertaining my friends uh, with, with writing funny little poems or songs um, and, and writing letters to people. And everyone always said, oh, we really like your, your writing. And, and I just liked writing. So I didn't see it as a, as a career or a job. Um, I, I wanted to be a, a rock singer, actually, and I, was, I used to write songs and perform them in a band, uh, but I was a terrible singer. And after a while, my, my song lyrics got longer and longer and I went, maybe I'm like more of a storyteller. So I, 
I eventually got out of bands, became an English teacher, and at the same time as I was learning to tell stories in my writing, I was dealing with kids who didn't like reading or writing, who thought books were boring. So I started just naturally writing stories for them and they really enjoyed the, they were often just little embarrassing stories of my, from my own life. Uh, uh, you know, one I remember they really liked was uh, the story of two brown blobs when I was having a bath when I was little and suddenly two brown blobs appeared in the bath with me and I didn't know what they were or where they'd come from and, uh, and they chased me around the bath for a while. Everywhere I moved, they moved with me. And I wrote this down and the kids just thought this was really funny and they all could share experiences like that. So I said, all write down your embarrassing stories, we'll photocopy them, make a book and we'll put it in the school library and then you'll all be authors and they really enjoyed that process, realised that writing is really just entertaining people, and, uh, and I started self-publishing and photocopying my own collections of writing, and that's, that's where I um, got the idea to do it full-time. And I think the really interesting thing about that is you go... Um, you've had like a, a journey to get there. You've gone from being in bands to being a teacher to being a writer and all of those um, different stories and experiences that you collected along the way has led you on that path and probably given you a lot of material to write about. For sure, and, and a lot of skills too. Um, like as a singer in a band, I had to get up on a stage in front of people, which was not something I necessarily wanted to do. It was just I'd written all the words, so... I had to learn to do it. And then uh, once you've written a book, you get invited to talk to kids. And so I went, oh, yeah, I remember how to do this. And, um, and that's, you know, talk, the skill of being able to talk to people is, is something you can learn, just as the skill of being able to write for people is something that you get better at the more you practice. The difference with writing is you don't have your audience in front of you. Uh, you can't see them reacting. So you have to imagine how they're, you know, whether they're enjoying your story or not. And that's the process that we've, I've learned to incorporate into my writing process with people like Terry to help give me feedback. Yeah, great. I can't wait to talk about him a little bit later on when we, in our um, discussion. Our next no, question... Let's, let's not talk about <laughs> Terry. Let's not wreck it. <laughs> It's just, just me today. Just you, all you. <laughs> um, our next question is from Claire in Burke, New South Wales. My name's Claire. I live in Burke and I go to the school named St Ignatius. And I'd like to ask a question. Where did your passion for reading start? Where did your passion for reading start? Well, I grew up with lots of books around me. I had Dr. Seuss books. I enjoyed the nonsense and the colour of those. Uh, I loved Enid Blyton books, the, the crazy fantasy adventure. But my grandmother had a book, an old German children's classic written in about 18, 1850s, and it was cautionary tales, and they would all start the same way. The, the parent would say, don't do this thing, and then they would go out and the child would do the thing that they weren't allowed to do and often end up either dead, maimed or, uh, or horribly, 
in a bad state. And um, one girl played with matches and burnt herself up. Another boy sucked his thumbs and a man came in and cut them off. And I was reading this at the age of four or five going, whoa, this is like, what? Um, what's going to happen next? And um, they were all luridly illustrated and and it was kind of horrible but it was quite funny at the same time because it was so over the top. And no one ever had to give me a lecture about reading. I knew that books offered a, a, a doorway into a world that was not like every day, that this doorway could lead you anywhere. And, you know, I, I went into fantasy. I, I loved science fiction. I loved the short stories of Roald Dahl, the weird Twilight Zone stuff. It was always an opportunity to get out of boring everyday world and into the infinite. I think I've I've heard it said, you know, reading is a gift that you can carry with you for the whole of your life. And it sounds like you've really started that quite young and you've carried that all the way through and make it, made a career about of it as well. Yeah, and, and, you know, last year in lockdown in Melbourne, you realised just what a treasure that was because as the world kind of got locked down, uh, it didn't bother me too much because I had the world of imagination and books to retreat into um, uh, even, even more than usual. <laughs> yeah. Our next question comes from Lexi at Belong West School. Hi, Andy. My name's Lexi. If you weren't not an author, what would your job be? So if you weren't an author, what would your job be? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I did want to be a rock singer, but the, the voice just wasn't there. Um, but uh, look, at being a teacher, I really loved uh, being in, in schools and um, uh, just Playing with kids' imaginations has always been a passion. Um, I, I grew up in a street with a lot of children all around us and um, some of us older kids used to entertain ourselves by telling the youngest kids really outlandish stories of things that had happened to us and just trying to get them to believe us. <laughs> and so I've always enjoyed that. And when I became a teacher, I did the same thing. Um, but also... Uh, having done a lot of author talks and, and learned to, to make children laugh, um, you know, a stand-up comedian could be a good fallback too. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, listen, um, let's talk about Terry. I know this would be really hard for you to talk about him. Um, yeah. We know that Terry's illustrations are such a big part of your books and the collaboration that the two of you have together. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how the process of how you work together. And our first question comes from Coromel in New South Wales. My question is, how did you meet Terry? How did you meet Terry? That sounded like, how did I eat Terry? <laughs> it did, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> Be a great idea for a new story in the treehouse. I think someone's um, just given you an idea, that's for sure. That's where they come from. <laughs> Mishearing things is, is a very fruitful source of ideas. Um, how did I meet him? Uh, a publisher uh, very early on, on my first book, said, I think uh, we know this really good illustrator. He's got a great sense of humour. I think he'd be really good for you. And when I saw what he'd done on that very first book, I was 
like amazed. It was like he'd gone into my head and and visualised everything that I was just trying to suggest through the words, which was playful, chaotic, you know, fun, um, limitless imagination. Uh, that's that's what he could do. And in those first books, the Just series, he was sort of more around the edges of the page, just just being silly and doing a running commentary on the stories. But then we began to realise, um, well, I began to realise he could play a much bigger part in the story. If we got his illustrations to actually tell the story, that could let me pull back on the words. So I could just say things like, here's my wild and wonderful treehouse. And then I'd say, Terry, can you just draw a, an amazing treehouse? And then the reader can just inhale that picture in an instant um, and we can get on with the story much faster. So less words for me and a more pleasurable experience for the reader. And I think what he also does is make the world believable uh, because, you know, in the treehouse, that treehouse is structurally ridiculous. It couldn't possibly exist in the real world. But because he's drawn it so faithfully, I think it tricks you and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this works. I believe it. And he's got little penguins and rabbits running around having their own little adventures. So it makes the world come alive. And that, to me, is what makes a really good book, one where you feel it's alive, even where you've shut the, the pages it's still living there. Mm. That's what Terry brings to it. Absolutely. And can you ex tell us a little bit about the process of how you work together now? Um, I know that you said before it was around the edges and then um, Terry's drawings would go around the edges, but now it's more, is it more you work together at the same time or do the pictures come first or do the words come first? Well, f as for a long time he was, we would work separately. And then we would sometimes have meetings and we'd spend a lot of those meetings laughing and I'd be telling him to draw certain things and he would draw them and I'd go, oh, that is so cool. Can you make that figure, you know, run up the clock and rip the hands off it or something? And he would do it and I was like, oh, this is really cool. We should meet every week and just have a day where we draw and write together and we'll see what comes out. And so that was the beginning of the true collaboration where I would suggest a topic, he'd draw the picture, then the picture would give me the idea for a rhyme. Uh, I'd write the rhyme that would need more pictures. The pictures would be so funny, I'd have to make the rhyme funnier. And so we eventually, over the course of about six or seven books, um, uh, arrived at the treehouse where he was fully telling a really long, complicated story. And I cannot tell you who, where the ideas come from. It's, it's so integrated. Um, one drawing, like in uh, 117 Story Treehouse, there's a traffic school and they, uh, they run an elephant on a bicycle is, is flying over the edge. And we, Jill and I saw this elephant on a bicycle and said, that's a really funny little character. <laughs> then we took, we said, let's use that in the next book. And so then we made a whole video series of elephant on a bicycle versus Godzilla. 
elephant on a bicycle underwater. And so we created a whole chapter virtually. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's endlessly back and forth and we're just really trying to entertain ourselves and push ourselves as far as we can. So in the books, there's always seems to be a battle between the characters of Terry and Andy. Is that not how it is in real life then? No, thank goodness. <laughs> in, in real life, we're all very well adjusted and no one ever smashes chairs over each other's heads or heads never come off our bodies. Um, but in the books, we need conflict, we need drama, we need problems and... Uh, it's often really funny to see Andy and Terry arguing about silly things, like in 13 Story Treehouse, who, who's the better drawer? Um, they have a drawing contest and, and Andy gets really mad when he loses the, uh, the contest and tries to hit Terry with a giant banana. And then I thought, well, then Terry pulls a banana out of Andy, uh, out of his hands, and smashes Andy over the head causing Andy to lose consciousness and then we have six pages of black. <laughs> yeah. um, now, that's just fun and you couldn't have it if Andy and Terry were always being nice to each other. Absolutely, I know. Oh, I just read that one so I know exactly what you're talking about with that. It made me laugh. So I want to get on to humour because one of the common themes that just travels through all of your books is, is humour. Um, and sometimes, you know, as you said, it just keeps topping itself. It goes further and further and further. Um, we have our first question from Lily at North Ingle uh, School. Andy, how do you make the um, book so funny? How do you make the book so funny? Um, well, I've given you a little insight into sitting there with Terry and, of course, my wife, Jill, is, is an editor and she edits and co-writes the books along with us. So she's a crucial, um, a crucial kind of judge of whether this, the story is... And Terry and I can be too silly. We can become... We can make a dog bark for 56 pages of just a dog going bark, bark, bark which we find very amusing, but Jill will come in and go, I'm getting a bit bored by about page uh, five of this barking dog, so can we cut this down? And we go, oh, all right, yeah, all right. <laughs> so we need a judge to tell us when it's stopped being funny, but we're also uh, working on each book for 12 months. So we rewrite and reread and consider um, I hold it up to the books that I find funny and that I loved as a kid and even now, and I think, is this as funny as the books as, that I admire? Mm. And so that will be a crucial test for me too. And if not, I'll just rewrite until it's as funny as I can get it. Um, and that's, yeah, based on feedback from Jill and Terry and also sometimes reading it out to kids. Yeah, great. Um, now, what advice, do you have any advice that you could give any kids are out, out there that really want to write a funny story but they don't feel funny themselves? Well, that's a hard one. Um, maybe writing funny stories is not for you if you're not feeling the funniness as you're writing it. 
Um, I write funny stories because I love funny stories. That's all I really know. If you wanted me to write an action thriller, I would not be able to do it because I haven't read enough. I don't love them enough to know how they work. So, so that's one tip is write the sort of story that you love. Um, another is, um, well, see what happens when you write because I actually tried to be a serious writer for a little while. I was trying to write proper stories and I found it was impossible. Um, there was a romance writing competition uh, for the Women's Weekly, I remember, and they said, write a thousand-word romance and win, you know, thousands of dollars. And I went, how hard would that be? And so I had a man and a woman uh, in, in, in an embrace and they were melting into each other's arms. And then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if the woman actually melted <laughs> and she's just a puddle of, of on the ground? And, and so that's the one I wrote. Needless to say, I didn't win the competition, but it's a good example of how I just can't stay serious. But I think everyone will find certain things happen when they write if you get out of the way and let the story guide you. Mm. Um, I just want to pick up on what you just said. When you say get out of the way and let the story guide you, what do you mean by that and is there any advice that you could give about how to do that? Well, I've always had a little book. Um, I've got a version of it here. Um, it's just a 64-page exercise book. That's where I started writing when I was 10 years old, just a little book where I could put anything that amused me or that was interesting or I could write a story of a memory or a dream or something that I fantasised about. And I learned to do it really fast. So I would give myself a little time limit, like five minutes, and I'd have to write really fast anything I could think of uh, without stopping. And so you might start with a topic like, um, I don't know, teeth. And if I say teeth, you, everyone listening will be able to think, oh, yeah, I remember a story about a tooth. It could be a trip to the dentist. It could be losing a tooth. It could be trying to get one out. It could be leaving a tooth out for the fairy, um, the tooth fairy. And so we'd all have a story about a tooth. And then I could say um, shoe and you could all tell me a story about a shoe. Now, the technique I'm talking about is just writing really fast anything that comes into your head uh, when you think about that story. And it can be just three, two or three minutes and it's a really fun activity to try as a class. Then you all just read out your shoe stories um, if you want to. You don't have to read it out. It can be private. You'll notice my book uh, at the front there, there's keep out. No one gets to see it unless I decide. Um, so that's one of the ways I learned to write, just really fast anything that comes into your mind. That's great. Thank you so much for that. Now... Just going back to humour, one of the things that also goes through all of your books is sort of everyday disgusting things, um, like the day my bum went psycho and all of the things that happen in that book and just disgusting. Why do you think it is that these disgusting things are so funny? 
I don't know, you'd, you'd have to ask all the students watching. Uh, Terry and I both noticed that whenever we would do talks, when the, when the topic veered to the disgustingness, everyone was laughing really hard. And I think it's because, the, you know, disgusting things make us anxious. Uh, if you see dog poo on the ground, you're, you're anxious that you don't step in it. Um, and and, and humour, we all think it's fun to laugh, but it's also humour is a way of relieving anxiety. So in my stories, I'll often raise the tension and there'll be a dramatic situation so the, the reader is quite anxious. And then I'll do something silly. Someone will slip on a banana skin, for instance, and all that tension is released as laughter. Um, an interesting thing, when I was writing Just Disgusting, I made a list, and this is another technique for, uh, for getting ideas, is to simply put the numbers 1 to, say, 20 on a page, and then I had disgusting things that I might write about in this book. And I just started number 1, um, dog poo. Number 2, stepping in dog poo. Number 3, getting dog poo on your fingers when you try to get it off your shoe with a stick. Number four, eating a sausage roll and then suddenly and, and realising it tastes a bit like dog poo because you forgot to wash your hands after getting it on your shoe. And, and I just started making this long list. It turned into 101 disgusting things. And I would read it out to, to groups and everyone would be going, ugh, ugh. And I realised you don't even need a story anymore. You just needed to put these things in the reader's minds. So, um, yeah, I, I, I take notice of what my audience responds to and then I try to take them for a journey. It's, it's like um, yes and, yes and. It just keeps building and building, doesn't it, which is like a, a really amazing um, tool to open up the creative flow as well is to accept other people's offers all the time to make things bigger. Exactly. And that's how I'll often write uh, the outline of a story. Um, I'll say, good thing, bad thing. So I'll say, good thing, we have a day off in the treehouse. Bad thing, there's an eyeball hovering above the treehouse. Good thing, we love flying eyeballs, they're cool. Bad thing, a ray comes down and encapsulates us and the eyeball in abducts us. So you go, good thing, bad thing. Good thing, we're going through space, being coated by an eyeball. Bad thing, uh, we're on the planet Eyeballia and we're now in an intergalactic death battle. <laughs> <laughs> good thing, we have a soap bubble blaster um, and we blast that at the eyeballs. So there's always a good thing and a bad thing and that can help you outline an entire plot. Yeah, that's a really great tip as well. Now, we don't we know that we don't just need humour to make good stories. We also need really good characters. And um, what's really interesting about your characters, as we've already discussed, is that a lot of them are based on you and people that you know. And this leads us to our next question from Gideon at Mosman Prep. Hi, I'm from Mosman Prep. And why did you include yourself in your stories? Why did you include yourself in the stories? Because it was the only way I could get the stories to seem believable to, to me and to my audience. Uh, 
it's just how I've always told stories to, to those kids on the street. I would say, I was in the bath this morning and I was attacked by a shark and all I had was a rubber duck and I had to hit the shark. And they're going, really? Did this really happen? And I'm going, yep. And then I got the face washer and because the octopus tentacles were coming out of the tap. So I'm always inventing supporting detail to, to support my outrageous story. And I found when I wrote, the same thing happened. If I wrote about someone, it just didn't feel, I wasn't engaged. But if I wrote to myself, I would believe the story at the same time uh, and, and the readers would think, is this true or is this really happening? It seems true. And that's the whole game. You have to make the readers believe in a make-believe world. So I ended up in there. I, I, I got Terry in there because he was often not doing his work. So I, I was like, Terry, you're always distracted. Come on. Um, Jill is there going, uh, she's often fixing the stories. And so I made her a character in the books that fixes their problems, their animal problems. So there's an emotional truth to it all. But also I'm drawing all characters, I think you could argue, are coming from the writer, that we all have a distracted part of us. So when I'm writing Terry, I'm also, yeah, I can remember, but well, I'm often distracted. Um, I'm, I'm also um, good at solving problems, so I, I call on that for Jill. Uh, there's a character called Madame Know-It-All who wants to know everything. That's a part of me who gets frustrated that the more you know, the more you know there is to know. And so she acts out that drama for me, trying to fill her head so full that her brain eventually explodes. Um, so even the most, oh, there's a character called Professor Stupido who can just point at things and uninvent them. Um, I uninvent you. I don't like you. You annoy me. I, that's a part of me who would love to have that power. Thankfully, I don't. Um, but, uh, yeah, Professor Stupido is, is partly me. And, and then in real life, you look around, you'll see people acting out these parts of you. So hmm. all mixed up together. Okay, we have another question about the inspiration behind one of your questions, and this comes from Zane at Georgiana Malloy School. Hello, Andy Griffiths. My name is Zane and I am from Georgiana Malloy Anglican School in Bustleton. My question was, is Mr Big Nose your, based off your real publisher in real life? Is Mr Big Nose based off your real life publisher in real life? Thankfully, no. <laughs> we have a very good relationship with Claire, our publisher, who is a lovely woman. Uh, who we discuss things with and we, we work out when the deadline is and what the right thing to do is. Um, but in a story, uh, I like to go back to the three little pigs and the big bad wolf. Um, the three little pigs would not be a good story or a memorable story without a big bad wolf huffing and puffing and threatening to blow their house down. And that's the role that Mr Big Nose plays in the books. He huffs and he puffs and he threatens to make them go and work at the zoo um, as monkeys in the monkey house if they don't get their book done. 
So that's an extra little bit of pressure on them. And it keeps us interested as readers. Um, the first problem in the book is will they get the book written? Mm. The, then there's many smaller problems that they have to solve in order to, to get the book written. And then we deliver it to Mr. Big Nose. So he's, a, uh, he's just a way of making things, increasing the pressure yeah. on Andy and Terry. Yeah, the stakes are really raised by him always adding the pressure on them, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to move into writing techniques and devices. Now, you use a lot of things like play on words. So you'll say sphincter scale instead of Richter scale. You use a bit of uh, malapropism um, where you replace a similar word with another one that sounds like that. Um, alliteration and assonance. Can you explain a little bit about your use of these and why um, you choose to use them? I guess uh, at the heart of everything we do, there's play. Uh, when Terry and Jill and I sit down, we are playing with words, we are playing with ideas, we're playing with drawings, we're playing with different ways of telling a story, you know, it could be a list, it could be six pages of blackness. We're exploring and we're just going, what, what else can we do to keep ourselves and our readers interested. So playing with the words is, is a way of, of doing that. And also writing um, is a form of music. Uh, words have to sound good when you're reading them out. And we're, we often read the stories out to each other and we just listen. And does it sound nice? Um, does it sound memorable? I remember when we did the 65-storey treehouse, we had a cloning level and we could make copies of ourselves and to, to make the world's most dangerous wheelchair access ramp at the end of that book, which we needed to do, uh, we made hundreds of Andes and hundreds of Terrys and hundreds of Jills. And then we went to write the next book and I was like, are the readers going to wonder what happened to all those clones? Like, what do you do with with hundreds of clones, you can't just like put them in the garbage because they're kind of you. And so I thought this is going to be a question that's unresolved for the reader. And so I thought, what about we put them all into different levels of the treehouse? So I got excited because all the Andes could go into Andy land <laughs> and all the Terries could go to Terry town. And then the Jills, the Jills, what do we do? Jillville. And so then I was very excited because you had three levels that sound like they were invented specifically for that task and they're all playing with the rhyme of Jillville, Terrytown and Andyland. Um, another feature of those books is, is the poems and the songs that are woven all through them because I always loved that when, in the books that I read, like Alice's, in, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, lots of songs and poems all through those. So, yeah, we're playing however we can and the more you play, the more chance you have of engaging the reader. Mm. So would you say that play is probably the most important quality of someone who is writing books for kids? Um, I would say it's the most important quality of anyone who's writing books for anyone and, and, and possibly in any field. Because play is where we have 
creative possibilities swirling around us. Uh, we haven't committed to a decision yet. We're, we're just looking, what if this? What if that? And that can lead you to really unusual solutions to, to problems, whether they're literary problems that I'm dealing with or just problems in your own life. The more possibilities you can generate uh, to solve a particular problem, the more likely it is you're going to solve that problem in an elegant, effective way. And this is one of the reasons I'm passionate about books is because books are a mental rehearsal, watching characters under pressure make decisions. And even though I'm writing comedy, we watch my characters making stupid decisions to solve problems in stupid stupid problems in stupid ways. Um, uh, nevertheless, this is mental rehearsal. And the more you can read, the more you're just, you know, strengthening yourself um, and your ability to solve problems. Mm. Now, some of the Treehouse books to date have been made into, have been adapted for the stage. Can you, and I know that you're involved in that process of the um, adaptation in the rehearsal room. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and how that differs from writing the initial book? Well, I guess a play, and, and our plays are often about 60 minutes. So you have to hold the audience's attention in a theatre for 60 minutes. Uh, which is quite a tough thing. You've got to have something happening all the time. Um, you've got music and you've got uh, lights and you've got actors, um, you've got costumes, you've got a lot of different things. It's a very different process to a book where a book can be picked up and put down and read for five minutes. It can be read over two or three weeks. You, you can digress in a book. You can go off, oh, just before I go on with the story, I'm just going to tell you about this other thing. And as long as it's entertaining, the reader will go there. Theatre, much more difficult to digress. You've got to simplify it a bit. You've also got a limited number of actors, and often the Treehouse plays are done with three or four actors who will have to double up and be other characters. So there's a whole range of technical things going on in a play that uh, I don't necessarily understand. So my role in any play development workshop is to sit there with the playwright, whose name is Richard Tullock, who's a brilliant children's theatre playwright, had many years' experience, and I'll say, I don't think that's right. I think you should do it this way. And he'll go, well, you can't do it this way because uh, we've only got four characters, we're going to have to have this person off stage and I'll go, right, I'll shut up then. <laughs> um, but what I do attend to is just the spirit of it. Um, they will achieve the same silliness and the same joyful chaos as the books but in a completely different way and I'll just be there as an audience member going, I really love that, that is even funnier than what's going on in the book or... I don't think Andy would do that. He's Andy's not being much fun here. We need to lighten him up. Um, that's often that's often the thing that happens in a in a stage play. Andy becomes super bossy, and Terry becomes super silly. And it's like Andy's just bossing him around. 
not much fun. You've got to have Andy trying to boss Terry around but then getting caught up in the silliness. And so there'll be little things like that that I can contribute. But overall, I'm amazed by the productions. I love, I really value sitting there in the audience with all this stuff coming at me fresh, I can understand what it might be like to read the books um, from fresh. And I also enjoy the audience calling out things and telling the, warning the actors about what's what's about to happen or answering their questions. Yeah. Um, it's very entertaining for me to have that audience right there. That's fantastic. Now we're coming sort of to the last five minutes, so we've got a few questions here, just looking forward about things that you've learned and um, looking into the future. What is one of the most surprising things that you've learnt either about yourself or about what you do um, while you've been writing your stories? Oh, these are, these are heavy questions. questions. I've always <laughs> tried to write books that have no messages and where the... My, co my comic characters learn nothing, they, but they struggle and they never give up. And that's why I'm, I'm very drawn to the comedy genre. I love watching characters with no clue, no skills, no talents, trying to solve problems. And so th that is a serious thing I'm trying to convey to the kids, to keep, keep fighting no matter what. Um, even if you're as dumb as Andy and Terry. <laughs> um, but I guess writing the books, I've learned the value of collaboration. Um, having Terry there enriches the books endlessly. Having Jill at our sides, you know, again, enriches the books. And people getting lots of opinions can be really wonderful. Um, and also learning to incorporate random things that happen to you, the stuff that happens in your life, that's all really good stuff to put into the books and then you exaggerate it and, and make it more far-fetched. Um, 104-storey treehouse, I had a toothache. The, the entire book is about having a toothache <laughs> and, um, because I, I'd done the research. So, yeah, never underestimate the value of what's going on around you and stay awake. Stay awake to what's happening around you, um, what your friends are saying, what's going on in you, around you. That's one of the values of, of writing, even when you're not writing. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, we have a question here from Ollie at Yarrawonga College. When you read the schools, do you, um, do you put kids' ideas into your books? <laughs> so when you visit schools, do you put kids' ideas into your books? Look out, everyone. I will steal ideas from wherever I can, whenever <laughs> I can. I steal ideas from all the books I've ever read. You'll you'll see them. You'll see them often, quite obviously, in the in my in the Treehouse books. Uh, and I do occasionally get great suggestions from kids. Terry's uh, Ninja Snail Training Academy was was suggested by a group of kids in Queensland many many years ago. They Throughout this session, they were yelling hundreds of ideas, but that's the one I remembered. Um, the exploding eyeball level uh, and even the trunkinator was sent by a reader, a picture of an elephant in a boxing ring. And I went, oh, I like that. If I just put a boxing a glove on his trunk, we can call him the trunkinator and he's become a favourite character. So 
yeah, very occasionally I get great ideas from kids. I guess it's that thing that you were saying before about being awake, being observing around you what's going on, listening um, and, and writing down all those ideas as they sort of come to you in your life. That's where the notebook is, is handy, mm. is, is just writing things down. If you, if you have a, an exercise book, and I like a cheap exercise book because then you don't have to feel like you have to write something proper, uh, you've got that freedom. It's a, it's a, you know, 40 cent exercise book. You can fill it with nonsense. But if you just wrote one idea down every day, at the end of one year, you would have 365 ideas for stories. So that's why I find it hard when people say, I've got no ideas. Um, your problem is actually you have so many ideas. You've just got to write a couple down. Yeah. And a list can be a great help in that. Okay, our next question comes from Finn at Yarra Wonga College. Do you ever get bored of writing? Do you ever get bored of writing? Great question. Um, I never get bored of writing, but occasionally I will get bored of a particular story that I'm writing, and that's an indication that I've gone off track. I've, I've started becoming too descriptive or I'm... I'm, I'm weighed down with things and the joy has gone out of it, the interest has gone out of it, and I, if I and if I am not sure, I'll read it out to Jill. I'll say, Jill, listen to this, and I'll read it and she'll go, nah, and I'll say, yeah, so I'm even boring myself at this <laughs> point. So then I'll back back. I've created a little problem, like that's the wrong direction to have gone in. So... So boredom is an indication that you're not connecting with your true self or with the idea in the correct way. So back, back and try again. And I will try again with an idea hundreds of times until I either get it to work or I give up. And, and even then I won't let go of the idea. It'll come back in a book seven years later. Yeah. Go, now I know how to do that without boring everyone senseless. Okay, we've got a question from Ballarat Christian College. Hey Andy, I was wondering, what is your favourite type of pie? Bye. A very important question. What is your favourite type of pie? Uh, easy. Banana cream pie. You, you cannot get a better pie in the whole world. Um, Great answer. So yeah, that's, that's my weakness. <laughs> Uh, okay, I've got one last question for you. Can you give us the top three tips for anyone that wants to get started writing a story? You've uh, already given us lots already, Andy, today, but top three. Yeah, there's three really important ones. One, read as much as you can. Like the more you read, the more you fill up your, your imagination and your brain with possibilities and knowledge. The more books you read, the more you have to steal from when you make your own books. Um, so, so reading, you, you cannot read too much. Number And read the books you love, not, not the ones you're being told to read. Read what turns you on. That will be the key. Number two, write uh, every day, even if it's just five minutes into your exercise book. Uh, that will turn into 10, 15, strengthen your arm and your ability to put words into um, from your mind into your, your hand and 
uh, and as a subsection of that, learn to type like without looking, touch typing, so that you can speed along when you need to do that. And uh, number three, stay awake. Like look around you, listen, pay attention to what you're thinking, to what's happening, and uh, you'll never be without an idea. Andy, thank you so much. That's such a perfect place to end. Um, we can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing all of those insights into your processes and behind the scenes of writing all the books that you and Terry have created together along with Jill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Now, everyone, back to work. No <laughs> back shirking. to reading. Back to reading. Back to uh, reading. <laughs> a huge Bye. thank you to all of the schools that have joined us today and thank you so much to those who sent your questions in. And if you've enjoyed today's author talk, please head to our website at the Sydney Opera House and look for other digital opportunities, a workshop, a tour or another author talk that we've got coming up later this year. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And again, thank you so much, Andy. See you later. See you later. Thanks. Bye. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Artifati wherever you get your podcasts from.